0: It has been two years, one month, and four days since I last treated a patient. In this episode, we're going to focus on your experiences, but at the same time, we're going to cover how perception of what is real is not necessarily actually, actual reality. For starters, we need to discuss a separation between certain parts of the brain. Right now, I'm talking to the front part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex, sort of. There are a couple of areas in the brain responsible for language called Wernicke's area and Broca's area that I'm actually talking to. What I mean is that right behind your forehead is where the quote-unquote you exists, and that's who I'm talking to. The prefrontal cortex is your personality, your identity, your judgment, your critical thinking skills. Basically, everything that, that you think of as you is housed here. Its job is, put simply, to make sense of everything else that is happening in the rest of the brain, then turn that into a story of your experience for you to identify with. I want to move away from technical language a little bit. For ease of communication going forward, when I say front brain, know that I mean the prefrontal cortex. When I say back brain, I mean everything else behind the prefrontal cortex. Our front brain is very good at tricking us into thinking that we have the seamless experience of everything going on around us. What's actually happening is that your whole brain is in a dark box with zero contact with the outside world. It has to take in data sent from the rest of your body, interpret that data, and then form responses from the body while simultaneously the front brain tells the story of what just happened. Let me use an example to explain. When a spider crawls on your arm, special cells that detect light touch are triggered. They send a message through the peripheral sensory nerve pathway to your spinal cord. Your spinal cord has intermediary relay cells that pass the the signal from peripheral to central nerve. Hopefully that is a review for you from the previous episode. The signal continues up the spinal cord to a structure in the brain called the thalamus. I like to think of the thalamus as an operator for early telephone systems. If you're not familiar with how that used to work, what would happen is when you call somebody, you would actually be calling the operator. You tell the operator who you wanted to talk to, and then the operator connects you, the caller, to the receiver. The thalamus takes in signals and routes them to where they should go. I'm emphasizing should here for those of you who have played the telephone game as a child. Those of you who have played this game will remember that it didn't take too many kids in the chain for the original message to be significantly warped by the time the last kid hears the message and then reports it to the room the nervous system can fall prey to the same messing up of the message as it traverses several connecting points. Going back to the spider, the signal would be routed from the thalamus to the sensory cortex of your brain where the signal is processed. The front of your brain looks at the sensory cortex and goes, I know what that signal looks like. That's a spider! Freak out! The freak out then becomes a message to the motor cortex to generate a flailing of limbs to get the spider off your arm. The motor cortex sends signals, but they're sloppy. A couple of other structures in the brain called the cerebellum and the basal ganglia help with the coordination of movements. All of these signals collide in the thalamus again, where the signal is passed down the spinal cord as a uniform message. Then once again, it hits the interneurons in the spinal cord before being passed to the peripheral motor nerves. The signal reaches their destinations, resulting in various groups of muscles creating arm flail to knock the spider off your arm. Shortly after the flail begins, your eyes look at your arm. The visual information is taken in through the eyes, enters the optic nerve, travels through the thalamus again, and is sent to the visual cortex for processing. The front brain looks at the visual cortex and recognizes the information. Oh, that's just my arm, and there's nothing on it. Now I look stupid. Your system responds by flushing your cheeks with blood and makes you look around all over to see if anyone watched you freak out about nothing. That story is one aspect of perception versus reality regarding sensations of touch and vision in this example there is a fair amount of actions that came from the you that i had referenced as the front brain those actions were based on a faulty message from the start there was no actual spider with which to freak out about perception of what is real is actually not real at all now let's talk about sensations where you lack control over your own body There's a set of systems that entirely bypasses the front brain reactions. These are called reflexes, and they don't give a shit what your front brain thinks. They're going to do what they want to do, and you can't do anything about it. The most familiar reflex for for people is probably when a provider whacks your knee with that tiny rubber hammer and your foot kicks out. Even if you resist your leg from moving, you still have your quadriceps, which are the muscles on the front of your thigh, trying to contract that would kick the foot out if you weren't contracting your hamstrings or the muscles on the back of the thigh, in order to stop the foot movement. You might think you can use your front brain to command the leg to stay still, but rest assured, every other part of your nervous system disregards anything the front brain says. An important takeaway from this is that the more you can separate yourself from the illusion of control, the easier it is to work with the nervous system, and even trick it. I'll get into that more later. If you've listened to all of my episodes to this mm-hmm. point, you've probably recognized mm-hmm. that I tend to go down tangential rabbit holes. I'm going to do that again. I find metaphors and real-life examples to be really helpful in my learning as opposed to rote memorization. I know this is true for many people as well, so I'm going to create an association to interpret some of the following information. Call back to last episode's disclaimer, what I'm about to say is not backed by my doing any research, may not be true at all, but this association did help me learn and retain information about reflexes. Hopefully it'll help you too. I like to approach reflexive activity in the context of what did the earliest humans have to do? The evolution of our species has had a lot to do with the combination of random mutation and natural selection pressure that created more optimal patterns for survival. Those who survived could reproduce, passing along those optimal patterns. Using the hypothesis that the right kind of reflexive activity helped propagate the species, I was able to take every reflex I learned and apply it to how it, appla- how it helped early humans survive. One of my favorite examples was the withdrawal and crossed extension reflexes. When you're walking around your house barefoot and step on a Lego, the most likely response is you yell, ouch, plus or minus various forms of profanity. The reflex action is a chain of events set off by some very specific criteria being met. The first criterion that must be met is that something pointy presses on the skin on the bottom of your foot. There are light pressure sensors in the skin, and when something pointy presses into the skin only a small area of those receptors fire. If something isn't pointy, like say a 2x4, there's a greater area of light pressure sensors that are being tripped at the same time. Small area of light pressure sensors firing equals pointy, while large area pressure sensors firing equals dull. Secondarily, pointy things push deep, which is why it's picked up by different sensors that are specialized in detecting deep pressure. If you step on a really tiny pebble, like a piece of kitty litter, the light pressure sensors will register sharp, but it doesn't push into the skin enough to trouble, trigger the, the deep pressure sensors. In order to trick the reflexes, you need a small area of light pressure sensors to trip, deep pressure sensors to trip, and then finally the third ingredient. Speed of pressure generation. I don't know why you would want to slowly push a thumbtack into your foot, but if you did, you wouldn't get any reflexive activity. You would only get pain. The spinal cord has an automatic process to react when the three criteria I mentioned all reach at the same time. Without your control, the spinal cord reacts with a set of responses, response signals that lift the stabbed foot off the ground and straighten the knee of the opposite leg. The reflex This reflex activity is meant to avoid puncturing the foot, which is a good thing for survival for early humans who weren't wearing shoes. In that period of human history, the development of an infection was just as likely to be deadly as it was not. Breaking down this reflex, you can't just raise the foot off the ground without anything else happening. You'll fall down, increasing your risk of injury, like breaking your hip. So the reflex also triggers the knee of the other leg to straighten. Those who had really good withdrawal and crossed extension reflexes didn't get infected feet or broken hips nearly as often as those with poor reflexes and therefore had more opportunity to breed, passing along the good reflexes. Now, some might understandably want to point out that stepping on a Lego hurts, so that's why all of this happened, that all of the actions were under your control from just to get away from the pain. If you remember this discussion the next time you step on something really sharp, Pay very close attention, and you'll realize that you actually lifted your foot a split second before you actually felt pain. This is important. The survival of your foot is time-dependent if you're stepping on something sharp. Pain is only felt in the brain, nowhere else. A reflex in the spinal cord means that the signal coming up only has to travel half the distance compared to traveling from the body to the brain, and similarly, the reaction coming back down also only has to travel half the distance. If we had to wait for the signal to get all the way to the brain, make an ouch, then have the reaction travel back down to lift the foot, it's too late. You've already punctured it, you fall and break your hip, your foot becomes infected, and shortly thereafter you die. Many people might be inclined to disagree with me when I say the pain is felt in the brain. No, Adam, my foot hurts. I don't have a headache. We're again in territory where your perception of what is real is inaccurate. The classic demonstration of this is what's called phantom limb pain. This is a circumstance where someone has a foot amputated, then later has pain in their foot. But the foot doesn't exist anymore. It can't hurt. When a foot is amputated, there are still nerves that originally went from the foot to the spinal cord, and of course spinal cord to the brain as we've discussed before. Removing the foot cut the nerve at the amputation site, which some might say would be kind of traumatic to that nerve. That nerve can still send signals from the amputation site to the brain, but where it ends up is in the part of the sensory cortex that is responsible for foot sensations. Your front brain sees the part of the sensory cortex for foot screaming, and obviously its only option is to determine that the foot hurts. Thus we have phantom limb pain and we have another demonstration of perception and reality being out of sync. This brings me to a second point about the statement, the pain is all in your head. Many of you who have heard this statement somewhere else are probably furious with me right now. The reason for that fury is often because the person who said it thinks that you're making it up, you're being dramatic, or some other incorrect statement. Rest assured, your pain is real. No one fakes pain, that's ridiculous. And someone who thinks you're faking pain is just being an asshole. Now, I'll give the asshole some benefit of the doubt, that people do fake dysfunction when there's secondary gain to be had. These people may say pain is the reason they can't do something, but they're faking the dysfunction that limits the activity when seeking that secondary gain. No one actually fakes pain just for the sake of it. Again, I'm going to go into more detail later about how pain only exists in your head. Just know that I will also explain how you're not crazy or faking it. Back to the story about reflexes and pain. In case you don't believe me that pain is is not the motivating factor for your foot raising off the sharp thing, I'm going to use a different example. There's no spinal cord reflex for hot like there is for something stabbing your foot. Put your hand on a hot stove, and it'll take a second to register, ouch, that follows. Now that you've ouched, you pull your hand away, but that reaction happened way too late. The time it took from the signal to reach your brain, process the data, then react took more than enough time to damage the tissue from the heat. How I remember the separation of reflexive movement versus pain-driven movement is that it would be hard for early humans to develop a reflex for hot. If you caught on fire, you probably didn't survive long enough to breed. At least, I hope not, anyway. That would have been very unpleasant breeding for both parties. In other words, the natural selection pressure for hot effectively became, don't touch it. No reflexes needed. I want to talk about one more reflex before diving further into the experience of pain. This is an example that your perception of reality is not actually reality at all. I'm going to have those of you who are willing and capable to do a little demonstration. Unfortunately, those of you who are hyper-flexible likely won't be able to feel this effect, though. So if you're really flexible, you'll just have to take my word on the effects of what we're about to do. I would also think that it should go without saying, but if you're injured or experiencing pain during any of this, don't do it. The first step is to put your hands together in a prayer position. Keeping your palms touching, slowly lower your hands until you feel a stretch on the bottom of your forearms. Pay close attention to what this stretch feels like. Try and memorize that sensation. Now, stick your arms out to your sides so that if you were standing up, your body would look like a T. Turn your hands up so your palms are facing the sky, then bend your wrists down and straighten your fingers so they point towards the floor. You should notice that your wrist, hand, and fingers are in roughly the same shape as when you were in the prayer stretch position. The only thing that's different in this position is your shoulder and your elbow. You'll also likely notice in this position that your forearm feels a stretch too, but it's a different kind of stretch. Feel free to go back and forth between these two positions to check that out. You should notice the different kinds of stretch, even though there's no difference in the angle of your wrist bend between the first prayer stretch and the second arms out T position. The difference in sensation you may be feeling is that the prayer stretch is stretching a group of muscles called the wrist flexors. The arms out position, on the other hand, is creating what's called median nerve tension, and the median nerve is unhappy that you're increasing the tension put upon it. You may recall from the last episode that nerves aren't really stretchy. By adding tension to the median nerve, you're effectively yanking on it. Now the nerve is mad and trying to make your wrist flexors contract to reduce the tension you're putting upon it. Speaking in physics terms for a second, a gentle stretch on a muscle and a gentle contraction in a muscle are both representation of tensile forces in the muscle fibers. It turns out that your brain has a hard time distinguishing between those two kinds of tensile forces. So your front brain can only look back at the sensory cortex, shrug its metaphorical shoulders, and go, I don't know, stretch, I guess. And that's what you experience. In actuality, one position is a nice stretch for a muscle, the other is a pissed-off nerve. But your front brain lumps them together in the same category of experience. At this point, we've covered false alarms, your body doing things you can't control, and your front brain being flat-out wrong about what's happening in the body. These three examples are only the tiniest sliver of how little you can trust your front brain's interpretations of what the back brain and the rest of the nervous system are doing. So what does this have to do with pain? Pain is, plain and simply, an alarm going off. Pain isn't a problem in and of itself. It is the indicator of a problem existing. The job of the PT is to to determine the origin of the problem that resulted in the warning signals going off. For example... If your kitchen is on fire, and the living room alarm is sounding, I'm not going to go investigate the fire alarm. I'm going to go straight to the kitchen and address the fire. In another example, if you light a match under a fire alarm, it'll go off. If you blow the match out, the fire alarm continues to sound. There's always those fun times when the fire alarm just goes off when there's no detectable reason as well. This analogy of comparing fire alarm behavior to pain isn't all that different from what happens in the body. In the circumstances when the fire alarm isn't misbehaving, pain is generally what happens after trauma, or when a bunch of compensatory movement patterns build up over time. When enough things are trying to compensate for too many other things, eventually a tissue reaches its breaking point and a pain signal is generated. In the two examples of fire alarms misbehaving, we have to return to what I said earlier. You can't trust your perceptions of what is real, but you're not faking pain. There are many reasons a nervous system can go haywire, and I'm pretty sure modern medicine doesn't even know a quarter of all the possible reasons. Sometimes one of the sensory nerves sends the pain signal to the brain in a manner like the match in the fire alarm. There was a small fire, or small injury, but even when the fire goes out, the alarm is still screaming bloody murder. Your pain is real, and it is severe, but it isn't proportional to the actual injury. Don't forget that your brain is still in the same dark box as the rest of the brain. Your front brain is still in the same dark box as the rest of your brain. All it can do is look at the information from the the sensory cortex, which is sounding off nuclear missile launch level alarms. Since that's the information the front brain can see, it has no choice but to believe you didn't step on a Lego. You actually stepped on a landmine and your foot exploded. It's not faking pain or exaggerating it. It's simply the front brain reporting what it sees. There are many situations where chronic pain develops as well. Now, I can't really liken these situations to the fire alarm that goes off for no reason, but it's sort of similar. In the latter half of my career, the majority of patients I saw were dealing with some kind of chronic pain condition. In nearly every case, without my asking... I was told the same thing by these patients at some point in time while they were in my care. Blank happened years ago. I have no explanation for for why, but nothing has been the same ever since. There always seems to be an initial injury that starts the alarm, but the alarm doesn't stop. With time, the original alarm starts to recruit neighboring alarms. The patient may complain of a couple primary painful spots, but now the whole body hurts in some way. Secondarily, we've all heard the expression, practice makes perfect. This is true of all things, good and bad. When your sensory cortex is screaming an alarm of pain for years, it gets really good at pain. It'll start to take normal stimulus and treat it as dangerous and create more pain sensation that reinforces the screaming. I'm going to clarify again, no one fakes pain. Becoming skilled at pain is not a reflection of the front brain. It is not a personality, it is not a decision, it is not a choice. It is a reflection of the nervous system going haywire independent of your front brain. You can try all you want to ignore the pain, but it's not going to work. Ignoring pain is the front brain trying to stick its fingers in its ears and yell, la 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 la, The simple fact is, the pain signal has already been processed, the back brain doesn't give a shit what the front brain thinks or does. Even worse, trying to ignore pain is often frustrating and exhausting because it's so ineffective. This frustration tends to trigger stress responses in the body that result in the stress hormone cortisol flooding your bloodstream. Fun fact, cortisol has a tendency to magnify pain signals, so definitely not liking that as a response. This brings me to my final point for today. We can't force the back brain to do anything, we can't control our sensations or reflexes, and we certainly should not be pretending that we can grit our way through pain. What we need to do is trick the back brain into flat-out not processing pain signals coming from the body. This is not easy, and it takes a lot of practice, but it is achievable to varying degrees. Turns out it can even be effective for a fire alarm that isn't misbehaving. After all, you have to fight a fire. The alarm did its job, but now it would be great if it would shut up while you're fighting that fire. The next episode will be the last in this mini series on pain. I'm going to use a couple of patient stories as examples of dealing with pain and the lessons that can be learned from them. I'm also hoping to take all of the academics of this episode and the previous one to give you some practical tools on what you can do when you're in pain.